Hey, it's Catherine from the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. And I have to ask, are you looking to launch or expand your farming business? The Organic Grower School's Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications, and it's just about to kick off. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina. From WPVM LP in Asheville, you're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And here's the late, great Daniel Johnston. We miss you already, Daniel. find you in the end You'll find out just who was your friend Don't be sad, I know you will But don't give up until True love will find you This is a promise with a catch Only if you're looking can it find you This true love is searching too recognize you unless you step out into the light, the light. Don't be sad, I know you will. But don't give up until true love will find you in the end. Perhaps you know his name from Top Chef, but before the cameras started to roll, Chris Scott spent 15 years in Philadelphia cooking for the Star Restaurant Group with names like Franklin Becker and Marcus Samuelson. He went on to become the executive chef for CNN, cooking for none other than Prime Minister Tony Blair and South African President Nelson Mandela. Then he opened Brooklyn Commune before his off-lauded restaurants Butterfunk and Sumner's Luncheonette which shuddered in 2019 as casualties of the rising rents in New York. More recently, his work and his historical activism took him to Connecticut, where he opened Birdman Juke Joint, a restaurant intent on sharing his family's history of slavery and liberation and the birds that made their lives possible and made our dinners all the more enjoyable. Montreal-based writer Anna Gwen ventured to Connecticut to check it out and caught up with a chef later by phone. Here she is. We parked the car somewhere in Black Rock, a residential waterfront neighborhood in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and headed to the Main Street to eat dinner at Birdman Juke Joint, the new restaurant conceptualized by Chef Chris Scott. As we walked, I looked around at my surroundings. 
It's a cozy East Coast suburb where beach-style family homes and various colored palettes and bricks and source signs that portray the old town charm contrast evidence of modern upkeep. As we got closer to Fairfield Avenue, the streets were full of slow drivers looking for parking or groups of people on foot looking for dinner options on a Friday night. This is it, my partner Matthew announced. We stood in front of the restaurant, the building with brick walls, and a rusty awning with a corrugated metal roof. I didn't see a sign. We walked into Birdman. Chris had told me he was not going to be in that night. Birdman has been open for about three months now, and Chris regularly updates me about news and restaurant stories via social media and WhatsApp. He lives in Queens, New York with his family, and he often commuted two hours to Bridgeport to prep for his opening and dinners. How often are you at the restaurant now? I know for a while you were there almost every every day actually, and you would sleep. sleep. Right. Yeah. When we opened up, when we opened up, I was there um, pretty much seven days a week. Uh, I would sleep there maybe one to two days a week. Uh, I would be there, you know, like 9:45, 10 a.m. until closing, um, seven days a week. Um, I had I bought myself a little cot where I would either sleep in the restaurant or there was a buddy that would let me crash on his couch where I would um, try to stay in a hotel. But, but I was pretty much working seven days a week trying to get it set, trying to get it ready, trying to get the standards up, trying to get the purveyors in line, trying to get it staffed, you know, trying to get it ready. I mean, it's it it's it's there now. And because I live almost two hours away from the restaurant, mm-hmm. um, I'm up there, you know, one to two times a week now. Mm-hmm. You know? When I first reached out to him to talk about story pitch, Chris excitedly sent me messages about Birdman's opening in June of this year. These messages were mixed with other tidbits about working in the restaurant industry as a black chef, his family life, and the beginning of my understanding of Birdman's narrative. Chris emphasized that the story, based on slaves who tended to the chickens during the antebellum era and after slavery, is one of resilience and triumph, something he repeated throughout our conversation. But those trips to Bridgeport began to decrease. He began showing up once or twice a week. In his messages to me, Chris expressed doubts regarding the way the menu was developing and, most importantly, the story of Birdman. Chris seemed aware that the draw of his new restaurant was primarily advertised through his participation on Top Chef, but he wanted Birdman to be about the story of Birdman. Okay, so the Birdman is the individual from the from the farm, the plantation, who tended to the birds from egg to slaughter. He was basically a chicken farmer, and um, you know he built the coops, he built the slaves. Even after slavery, they took their chicken husbandry skills and their farming skills and utilized that in order to make a better way of life. You know, a lot of them uh, continue becoming chicken farmers. A lot of them even took it to the next level by actually selling eggs or selling chickens um, down the road, having butcher shops. You know, a couple generations down, even after that, able to. Um, sustain a uh, a uh, a decent lifestyle through that craft, being able to to live like a normal person, buy a house, buy a car, put their kids through school. 
Noting the importance of the role of agriculture, the chicken, and the food wart, Chris centered the story of Birdman so that his diners had a story and history of the food. He started to connect the culture and history he was reading with his own personal family history, digging back to seven generations of his own family line. And I'm the type of person that when I'm reading something, especially history, I like to really submerge myself into that story. So as I'm reading it, I'm on the plantation as well. I'm looking around. I'm feeling what they're feeling. I'm seeing what they're seeing. I'm eating what they're eating. You know, and in that, in the backdrop or, or somewhere in that scene was always the bird man. Connecting his own research about the history of chicken farmers from books written by culinary historian Michael Twitty, Dr. Syke Williams-Forsen, and other authors, Chris reached out to Dr. Kelly Fanto-Dietz, historian and author of Bound to the Fire, How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Help Invent American Cuisine. He had read her book, and together they began a small research project. To memorialize the story of the Birdman, Dietz helped Chris gather more oral histories and narratives from the Works Progress Administration to flesh out the story of the folks who relied on chicken to live. In a phone interview, she highlighted the importance of oral histories, tracing them back to griots in West Africa, who archived the oral traditions of ethnic groups and narratives of their communities. The most common thing is often unrecorded, Dietz said. Everybody knows there are African Americans who are chicken farmers. They were never formally called Birdman because they were hidden in plain sight. The Birdman does not represent a single person, but a community of farmers or even a history of black entrepreneurs, Dietz said. The name Birdman is significant to Chris as a historical food narrative that can subvert stereotypes about particular Southern food. So when, when, when the opportunity came to, to have this, the other restaurant, um, I thought, you know, why don't I name it after this person just so that it's not another, just another regular fried chicken restaurant. But this one has the depth of the story behind it and let's match it alongside of legendary fried chicken restaurants, sort of like Prince's Fried Chicken or Harold's up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's really focusing on the culture, the history, but this time with the story as well. Indeed, Chris acknowledges the problematic stigma of fried chicken in black communities, a common topic that intersects food appropriation and the privilege of white perspectives. In a recent essay for the Huffington Post, food and travel writer Neka M. Okona reflects on an August 1937 issue of Life magazine. The cover features a photograph of a black man named Lord E. Parrish, who sits in the back of a truck filled with watermelons. Although she writes that one may have viewed this image as one about hard work and harvesting, she observes the lasting negative food stereotypes that have impacted African-American communities. At the end of her essay, O'Connor writes that learning the history and unpacking these symbols can make them lose their oppressor's power. For Chris, fried chicken has always been significant in his career. At Butterfunk, his previous restaurant in Brooklyn, fried chicken was also a praised staple. But he wants us, his diners, to understand and respect the complete holistic narrative practice of Birdman's story and appreciate the beauty of the bird rather than the negative aspects of it. Of course, the role of food is important in any restaurant, but Chris hopes that people will become more interested in the story behind Birdman 
and that is able to exist because of the historical significance. It's so much more than just fried chicken. Right. But at the same time, it's about the fried chicken. Right. You know? My partner and I arrived sometime after 6.30, two and a half hours after dinner service began. The restaurant was already quite busy. All of the seats at the bar were taken, and there were many families talking loudly to each other. As we followed our waiter, I saw that the left wall was lined with framed photos, which Chris later told me were four generations of his relatives. As we waited for our food, I kept remarking on the details that I knew were significant to Chris and to the story of the Birdman. The chicken wire that framed the windows, the old-school juke joint decor, and the chicken wallpaper. The butcher funk sign towards the back of the restaurant, a happy reminder of the precursor of Birdman. The chicken shack replica located near the small window into the kitchen. Matthew had been listening to me point out the decor of the restaurant. You know, I wouldn't have known the story of Birdman if you didn't tell me, he said thoughtfully, his eyes scanning the restaurant. I would have missed a lot of the details because I don't know the story as well as you do, or if I didn't do their background research. He's right, and this is something that Chris keeps returning to, on how to simultaneously enjoy the food and bring proper attention to Birdman the story. Unless you get that message out there, it, it comes and goes, and the, and the diner will never know. Right. You know, they'll think it's just another chicken or southern restaurant. It takes that living lifeblood of the individuals that work there. Mm-hmm to be able to convey that story to the guest. You know, I mean, as you walk in, you can't help but miss people that are up on the wall. You can't help, you know, but miss the, the, the old school juke joint kind of decor mm-hmm. to everything. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I think that it takes, you know, some educating to the staff to be able to convey Hey, listen, you know, welcome to Birdman. Let me just tell you a little bit about what what it is, Mm -hmm. you know. This feature of dining is not new, and it's something that has been discussed in Mary Douglas' seminal essay, Deciphering a Meal, published in 1972. Although she does not explicitly talk about aesthetics, Douglas provocatively wonders what are the pre-coded messages of food, if food is viewed as a code or a form of language. She writes that the messages of food can reveal patterns of social relations being expressed. Very much an analysis of rhetoric, Douglas's primary questions can be summarized. What is the meaning of a meal, and what meanings remain when it's removed from its original social historical context? These thoughts distracted me throughout the meal. Matthew had ordered the signature lemonade buttermilk fried chicken, and I, a rice bowl of seared cauliflower, black-eyed peas, and kale. As he marveled at his meal, I've never had fried chicken like this before. I ate my slightly too salty bowl and looked at the now very busy restaurant and kitchen staff. Did they know the story of Birdman and what fried chicken meant to the Birdman? Can we continue to simply enjoy food while ignorant of the historical and social context? Chris noted that the diners do enjoy the food at Birdman. Even before its opening, Chris remembered the welcoming reception of the community in Black Rock at the pop-ups and events he participated in order to drum up interest for his new restaurant. As he was telling the story of Birdman at an event in Hartford, Chris suddenly realized that not everyone would appreciate the lessons of the story. I mean, there was one unusual moment, you know, when we were in Hartford and I was 
telling the story about the Birdman, you know, the same one that I told you. Mm-hmm. And I guess one um, thought that I was like a, like a loose cannon, you know, almost. They, 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 they thought I was like on some paragon trip, you know, and thought that maybe the story of the Birdman was a little too political or a little too black. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, there's no beauty when it comes to slavery, but, but it's all true. Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, and it, it's a message that needs to be a part of that story in order for you to get it and for you to understand it and for you to, under, and for you to be able to feel it. Mm-hmm. You have to take the good, bad, and ugly with it all. I've been seeing a lot of exchanges about the emptiness of the phrase, all food is political. Many have dismissed it as a truism. Others conveniently separate food, or any object, from its political sphere. But perhaps the best way to unpack the statement is to thoughtfully question, what do we mean by politics, and whose politics? Perhaps we need to think about what it means to be supportive to black chefs like Chris Scott without having to worry about guilty consumption, or to update Douglas's questions how can we confront those who try to remove the history of the Birdman? We ignore what we want to ignore, Dietz told me. We don't want to conjure up shameful histories of our past, and we pick and choose what their history is. It's the same with how they pick and choose their food. At some point, we have to deal with the emotions in the past of the food, and appreciate that Chris is putting his heart, his soul, his skill, and talent of his ancestors in the food. But Birdman is still a business, when Chris is at the restaurant, he will share stories about the Birdman, about his family, about the food, but not without remembering that incident in Hartford. He has hinted that, since then, he feels muted, careful not to offend. I don't want to mm. offend, you know, and I never thought that I was doing that before, you know, which, which is kind of a shame because then the real story of of, of, of what I'm trying to say never really gets out there the way that it should be. Right. He contrasts his experiences at Birdman with that of Butterfunk. Whenever he brought up Butterfunk, he seemed nostalgic for a time where his diners genuinely appreciated and felt the story of his family and what they meant to him. By the time we left the restaurant, nearly all the tables were occupied. As we started to drive away, we passed a sign that read, Welcome to Historic Black Rock. That was Crust Magazine content editor Anna Gwen with her look at the Birdman Juke Joint in Black Rock, Connecticut. Find the story at our website, dirty-spoon.com. You can find more of Anna's work at Crust Magazine and at her website, ilostmyappetite.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is on the air here at WPVM due to our underwriter, the Marketplace Restaurant. Celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, founded in 1979, the Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. Have you heard Skillet yet? It's a podcast from journalists Jen Nathan Orris and BPR's Cass Harrington, but it isn't your average food podcast, and that's what I love about it. Each episode, they venture into the kitchen of a chef you probably haven't heard of, where they learn to make just one dish. Over the course of that cooking, you learn the stories behind the chef, where they come from, and what drives them. Skillet starts their second season this October. The first was filled with deep, searing interviews that really cut to the heart of American society, immigration culture, and the origin stories of some of our dearest neighbors. John caught up with host Jen Nathan Orris at the end of season one. And here's their conversation. When So when did you start getting the idea for Skillet? When did this pop yeah. up? So that was actually about one year ago this month. Um, I was sitting on my back porch and thinking about the most moving moments in my reporting job, working on food and farm reporting. And I realized that the moments that were most imbued with emotion was when people were talking about their favorite meals. So words like deviled eggs, all right two words, deviled eggs, could become a whole story if you just gave people a space to open up about it and really talk about how that relates to their family and their culture and their traditions and the changes in their life. Um, and so that all kind of came together that afternoon on the porch. And then at the same time, um, you know, I was getting a little frustrated with food media. Um, I think not just Asheville, but all over the country, there's an emphasis on a certain kind of chef and those same chefs end up in every magazine. And that's fine. Great chefs. Totally. Yeah. Um, but there are people who are left out of the conversation. And yeah. so I really wanted to create a place where more more voices could be heard. And like, what do I have? I have this microphone. I can hold it up to anybody. And so that was kind of part of the goal, too, was to provide a different space, a little less structured, um, where we could bring more people into the conversation. That's one of my favorite things about the show is that you don't focus on... I don't think you you have you haven't talked to a single like award nominated chef. Nope, you just in our talk- hearts they win our the awards of yeah. our hearts. But yeah, no James Beard nominees. I mean, the closest is uh, is uh, Santiago won the Wing Wars a few yeah, times. Yeah, and we were so happy for him. <laughs> and um, you know, we're kind of seeing him get to the next little level of success. Um, yeah. Over the past, like, just couple months since the story aired. And so, but the focus was never, let's get the highest tier chef to talk about the most impressive things. Um, because there's all these other stories out there that are really heartfelt and um, just reflect different cultures in a way that, you know, I, to be honest, I just felt like the sa- similar stories were being told. And I was writing the same stories over yeah. and over again. Um, and so I just wanted to broaden the conversation as best I could. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that, uh, I mean, the main reason we wanted to have you guys on the show is because I I feel like with Dirty Spoon, what we try to do is we like to say we don't focus what's on the table, we focus on what's under the table. Mm -hmm. And I think the coolest part about listening through season one of your show is like, yeah, it's a cooking show in the sense that you're in the kitchen cooking, but 99% of the conversation is not about what's going in that pan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of other uh, things that get brought up by that. 
And I wonder if that was, was that the intention going in or was yeah, that, definitely. yeah, how did you come to that, this format? Um, so I was thinking kind of on two levels, one about, um, kind of cooking sounds as a soundtrack, right? So I, we don't really have a budget for music. So I was thinking like, what is it that moves a story forward? What do I really like to hear? And cooking sounds are amazing. Um, just like the sizzle in the pan and all of that. But it needs to be more than just add this ingredient here, you know, like that's not a compelling half an hour of listening. Um, And I just felt like food has this way of putting people in a really tender space uh, where they're willing and able and present and can really open up about things that matter to them. So I was thinking, let's have the cooking be a soundtrack to these deeper conversations about things like class and race, um, family traditions, like, you know, things that are really wonderful to talk about and sometimes a little difficult, but that by cooking alongside with someone um, and hearing their stories, it like sparks a different level of memory. So I, it really, yeah, I never really pictured it as like a cooking show, but more of cooking to facilitate deep conversations. Well, and that's what happens in your kitchen anyway. Right, exactly. Like everybody just hangs out in the kitchen. Exactly. And, and that's where most of this the meaningful conversations you have in your life happen in someone's kitchen. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> is, I mean, is, I'm saying that as a broad general statement. No, I think so. For I, me, at least, yeah. that's the case. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So I was having all these all these thoughts about food media, and that's uh, right around the same time when my co-host Cass Harrington reached out to me. Um, and she was an established radio reporter who was in Illinois, and she was moving to Asheville. Um, and I was just really excited because there's not very many radio reporters here. Right. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of the only one for a really long time. So I was thrilled that Cass was coming, and really just wanted to collaborate. And so she had some similar views on just ways that we can make food media more inclusive. And she was so gung ho about my weird idea about like a cooking show that's also really deep. And so we just kind of set off on our collaboration and it's been a great partnership. Awesome. Yeah, I know you have a big background in food media. Does she have much of a background in covering food? Not food. So she um, has been a reporter for a long time and um, tends to focus on community issues, um, issues of race and class, and then just kind of general reporting. She was um, a morning edition host for various NPR stations. So she has kind of like a newsy background, but no real background in food, uh, which was actually really exciting because she was able to approach it um, from this totally different perspective, not having written like five food articles a week for 10 years, which right. is kind of where I'm coming from. And so it was all very fresh to her. And so it was cool to see it through her eyes. Yeah, because you have a, a long background in food. Yeah, media. I've been doing this a while. I know. Um, <laughs> I mean, <like>, yeah. <laughs> A long time. Um, and I, I often wonder, like, how does this keep my interest, right? Especially when you're writing in a small market about the same people often over and over again. And um, I think it's because food touches on almost every aspect of life um, that you can talk about the environment. You can talk about history. You can talk about science, uh, community, culture. Like, it kind of touches on everything through the lens of food. And then food is also just a part of everybody's lives. So this is something we connect with um, on a daily basis, and it's a way to get into conversations um, and talk about things that are um, just kind of broad, you know, and it's like a jumping off point. Yeah, I was thinking back to, like, uh, your interview with Santiago Vargas of, uh, of 
Yeah, out of the blue out Peruvian the blue. fusion yeah. cuisine. <laughs> and how, like, that goes from just uh, bilingual. Is, does Cass speak fluent Spanish? She's Yeah, she's fluent That's Spanish. incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so wonderful. Yeah, because she, like, beautifully translates, like, a, a sentence of his mm-hmm. about, like, this poetic thing about chopping onions. It was so deep, right? Yeah, and then it, it kind of flows into a inevitable conversation about his family and like the daughter that he left behind and that brings up a whole immigration issue which it's awesome because you guys never get overtly political about things but you definitely are touching on issues that are really relevant yeah and really right at at surface skin level and you're you're just able to cut into those a little bit and, and really bring up bring up some fresh blood on these issues is that is that something that you look at when you're picking who you're going to interview is that because you do have a very racially diverse um crop of of interviewees yeah it's something we think about that balance um and we let people drive the conversation they want to have so i think one of the times when we realized that was with bruce ukan uh we thought we might talk about immigration he immigrated from mexico um and we we thought like oh this this could be interesting. I'd be interested in perspective. We talked for 45 minutes about that and we could just tell this isn't, it doesn't speak to him as a topic. Yeah. It's not where he wants to go. So let's not shoehorn him it. into talking about immigration. That's not, that's not what he wants to talk about. So all of that got cut in favor of the emotional moment he wanted to share. And so I do think it touches on really difficult topics from the perspective of the person who's lived that experience just on their own, their own personal take on things. So giving people space to talk about political issues, if that's what they want to talk about, but also not saying, all right, we're going to corner you in this little way. And like, because you come from this background, you're going to speak on behalf of everyone on this issue. We just kind of follow them. And people want to talk about these things, but we do, we do plan ahead. So like we spend, um, time on somebody's social media feed before we reach out to them and say like, are they bringing up challenging topics just on their own because they're interested in them. Yeah. Um, and we try to go with people who are outspoken about an issue, but it's got to be the issue that they choose. Right. Yeah. This brings up something interesting, too, is I was wondering, like, when when I got into media, I thought, like, awesome, here's a place where I can have a voice. Mm. And it was like, I got things I want to say. Uh-huh. And then within the first, like, two years of the job, I realized... I need to shut the fuck up because there are a lot of people that have more important, interesting things to say. And my job is suddenly to give them a voice right? and to put their story out there. And then that's when it clicked for me that I was like, oh, journalism is not about your opinion. It's not about you at all. It is about purely being a mouthpiece for these other communities and these other people and whoever you're writing the story about. And it was just one of those things of like what I found myself doing was so much different than what I thought I mm. was getting into. And I'm wondering like for you, even with this series or with your career trajectory overall, how did you see this going and how is it different from that? Mm. So talking about voice, um, 
I ha- I was really attracted to journalism because it wasn't my voice. I am super not interested in what I, in my like what I have to say and like why the world should listen. I just don't think it's very relevant. But what I liked about journalism was you could talk to anybody, ask them anything, yeah. and then just kind of like lift up their thoughts. You know, it doesn't have to be like my thought. I don't know. You know, I was like. 18 years old, I don't really have any thoughts. I don't have anything deep to say, but I can hold up this microphone and someone might tell me something amazing. So thinking about voice, and I also think it may be a little bit of a generational thing. Like I see younger people um, who are really into like their point of view and their voice and developing that. Uh, and there's place for that in media for sure. That that side has never appealed to me, like even a tiny bit. Um, <laughs> but talking about uh, what is, what, what I thought it would be like and what it turned out to be, uh, specifically with Skillet, I thought it was going to be this super happy-go-lucky, like, cooking show, right? Like, you look at Food Network, everyone's happy and smiling. Like, even, you know, Anthony Bourdain's shows, like, it's, like, really just positive, you know? And, um, and so that's what I had envisioned was this like love fest, right? Yeah. Uh, with cooking sounds. And then we got there and like people are telling us these stories we weren't prepared for. That was the biggest thing that surprised me was how emotional these conversations got and that people were willing to open up in these ways I hadn't expected or prepared for. And that it ended up being a very emotional show. I, I thought the emotion would be happy. Like that would be the yeah. driving theme was like happiness and joy. And instead, I think it's like struggles and triumphs, you know, and we get to the happy parts. But uh, that's that's what surprised me most, how it was different. Was it like a little darker than you'd anticipated? Yeah, darker than I'd anticipated in a good way. I was happy to see that because yeah. it's compelling to listen to. But it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Did you ever try to push back against that or did you just take it as it came? I was just kind of open to whatever people wanted to put into the microphone, you know, yeah. follow their lead. Um, I yeah, I I was okay. I I actually season two. My goal is to not have to not make so many people cry. I don't. <laughs> that was never part of the show. Of like the vision of this thing was just to like make people cry in front of microphones. So I've been trying to like consciously dial that back within myself and how I ask questions. And so we'll see how that goes for season two because some of it is compelling. But like that was never my goal. Was like bring people to an emotional brink and then record it. <laughs> That surprised me. <laughs> Have you got people saying, no, I don't want to come on Skillet because I don't want to cry on microphone? Uh, I do encourage uh, future storytellers to listen to past episodes uh, before they say yes. Yeah. And say, like, it's a little different from other food shows. Like, maybe take a listen and see if this is right for you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for coming on. And, uh. Yeah, telling us the story of Skillet. I think it's like, I think you guys are doing really incredible work and I hope it, it finds a huge audience because you certainly deserve it with this with this show. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate that. We love Dirty Spoon and just really love the chance to talk about what we do and reach your listeners. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you. That was John talking with Skillet host Jen Nathan Orris on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. You can subscribe to their show wherever you get your podcasts or at skilletpodcast.com.
kitchen is often the great teacher. For many of us, it has taught us patience, attention to detail, diligence, or even our own limits. It is a safe place to learn, to try new things, make mistakes, and even learn how to clean them up. For Utah-based writer Andy Winder, the kitchen brought a different kind of lesson. After beginning his transition to male in college, the kitchen became a place to dig into the very concept of masculinity, simply what it means to be a man. Here's Asheville musician Story reading Andy's essay, Next Course. I've finally reached the boring adult milestone, where the happiest part of this month was buying myself a blender. That's not to say I've had a rough time lately. The idea of making caffeinated smoothies for breakfast thrills me, and the strawberry basil smoothie I made this weekend can attest to that enthusiasm. It reminds me of how far I've come as an amateur cook. When I started learning to cook for myself, I attended a university that, at the time, banned the sale of caffeine on campus. Until 2017, Brigham Young University didn't even stock their vending machines with Diet Coke. You had to buy the weird, produced specifically for Mormons, caffeine-free Diet Coke, and at that stage, what's the point? The cafeteria wasn't much better, especially for a shy sophomore who found the crowds overwhelming. I didn't always fit in at BYU, and not in the loner, no-one-gets-me kind of way. I wanted to belong, but my social anxiety often persuaded me that I didn't. And on top of all that, I'd just begun taking testosterone injections so I could transition to male. We have a term for the first few years after someone starts hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, in the trans community. Second puberty. As you can guess from the name, it's an awkward time. Your body's changing. Your mood is swinging. And once again, you're trying to answer the question, Who am I? And what does it mean to be me? I grew up in a family of four sisters, so I didn't have a sibling I could ask about what it meant to be a man. But I did have my dad. In many ways, my dad mirrors what you'd traditionally think of when you hear the word masculine. He's devoted to the Utah Jazz and BYU football teams, even when they have bad seasons or years or decades. He runs his own business out of his warehouse and taught me that sometimes tough work, physically and emotionally, is necessary to take care of those you love. He loves alternative rock and hates sensitive artists like Hozier or Sam Smith with a passion that I don't fully understand but he loves to cook. As long as I can remember, he's been the parent who makes family dinners on Sunday breakfast, not because my mom can't, but because he truly enjoys it. For my dad, cooking is how he shows his affection, and he's genuinely offended if we refuse something that he made. I never had to put up with Eggo waffles or Raisin Bran growing up, because for breakfast, dad would make blueberry pancakes with homemade syrup or egg in a holes with dill and avocado. Sundays were cinnamon roll Sundays, and we'd return from church to enjoy cinnamon rolls that Dad had made from scratch in our bread maker. But the best food he ever made was his authentic German dinners. In the early 90s, shortly after the Berlin Wall fell, which he had a piece of, my dad spent several years in Dresden. Even though he returned to the United States, he never lost his passion for German cuisine. He made us everything from Spätzle to goulash, to breaded schnitzel, and rotkohl, and all of it was delicious. My mom likes to brag to others that in her house, she can leave the cooking to her husband. When I was a kid, 
I remember some of her friends thought it was odd or even funny. My mom has never cared about gender stereotypes when it comes to chores. She makes a point of mowing the lawn every weekend before my dad can stop her because it makes her feel empowered. In a simple way, my dad showed me that being a man or a woman or a person in general is more than adhering to social traditions. Our humanity is much deeper than that, and I think it's the same with gender identity. My dad cooks for us because it's his way of caring and providing for his family. When my dad first began his business, this wasn't always easy. Some months, we couldn't afford to keep the heating on and had to boil water for our baths, but he made sure that his children were fed no matter what. Whatever masculinity really involves, I can't think of anything more important than loving others in the best way you can. So I guess it was fitting that I started to cook around when I chose to transition. Inadvertently, it reminded me that the overlap between being a man and being a good person is nearly complete. One of the first dishes I learned to make for myself was Rotkohl, a German side dish made from red cabbage, vinegar, sugar, and bacon. I could have chosen a more practical recipe, but as strange as it sounds, Rotkohl is one of my comfort foods. It reminds me of home. When I cooked it for the first time, my roommate peered into the pot, scrunched up her nose, and said, why is it purple? I don't think food's supposed to be purple. I never gave her a satisfactory answer to that question, nor did I convince her to try it. But while it turned out a little too sour the first few times, I still felt proud of myself. With hours of experimentation in the kitchen involving the only guinea pigs I could convince to eat my food, my partner Mac and myself, I've developed a knack for a few dishes. Mac loves my beef stew, and I'm particularly confident in my quesadilla making abilities. Sometimes, if my introverted self is in the right mood, I even invite people over for meals. When I moved into my first apartment outside of campus housing earlier in the year, I invited some friends over for brunch. These friends were fellow trans students from my time at BYU. Some of us transitioned while we were students, some of us waited until after we graduated, and some are still deciding what's best for their situations. Without these friends, I don't think I could have made it through my college years. Transitioning at a conservative Mormon university was hard, but having friends who empathized and lifted each other up made the difficulties worthwhile. I'm an avid cook, but definitely not a gourmet one, so I just stuck with making waffles for them. But even though the menu was simple, I thought about my family's breakfast growing up and smiled. I guess that's just what Winder men do. Cook for their family. That was Story, reading Andy Winder's next course. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, and there you can catch up on all of our backstories, past episodes, and check out the artwork.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant, founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago. The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and what our farmers have to offer. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. 
All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Daniel Johnston, Sheer Mag, Neil Francis, Tyler Ramsey, The Staples Singers, Brooke Blair, Marco Baltrami, The Meters, Graham Ravel, Atli Ovarsen, Wojciech Golchuski, and Brian Eno. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from 103.7 WPVMLP, Asheville. Hey, before we go, I just got to ask, are you looking to launch or expand your farming business? The Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan to build a profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina. Thanks.